Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and this week's guest, Dr. Willie Parker, as we delve into the topic of reproductive justice, where the brother's at. Let's get back into the conversation. So the mental health care provider in me <laughs> says that another challenge with that holograph, um, the, the unreal expectation that women will just, we're going to have a, a bus load of women that need to go get abortions at the same time. You know, we're all just going to get in there together and ride on across the state lines. Mm -hmm. um, what that, what, where I push back on, on that holograph is the mental health care needs that happen are needed to be addressed. Um, the creature comforts um, that are necessary for anyone that goes through a surgical procedure, um, mm -hmm. but especially one such as this. Um, and that even, I, I just think that when we start to entertain that holograph, if you really start to dig into it, you see that even that is inhumane, right? And that um, a woman is supposed to just get on a bus like she's going on a shopping trip to New York. Right. That's not what's happening. Um, and the fact that uh, women need to be nurtured, um, that women need to have space to cry, to emote, to process what it is that has happened. Um, even if you want it, it is not an easy thing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It is not something that anybody takes lightly. And it is traumatic to your body. Your body will heal. Um, with the appropriate care, but it is not um, something that I think should be taken so lightly or to be perceived as though women who need to make this decision take it so lightly. And I cannot speak for all women all the time, um, but in my experience, um, it is not something that is just a flippant overnight decision. I think the fact that you um, called out the research that said that most, especially women, Black women, um, have multiple reasons why they're doing this. That means that they're thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. uh, your, your mind uh, affects your behaviors. And what you want is to make sure that those, those mental thoughts and those behaviors are as healthy as possible, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and, and jumping in a, in a bus um, to go get uh, uh, an abortion as though it's a shopping trip to New York um, is not allowing for healthy balance between those thoughts and behaviors. Let me offer you just some observations as somebody who's done uh, lots of abortions uh, and have seen women have to make that decision in multiple contexts. Maybe just a, a, a caveat and not a rebuttal or pushback, but I can tell you from what we know about the research about uh, most women and, you know, as you said, they, I, I, I've witnessed personally and I know and we both know that women have the bandwidth and the capacity to be deliberative and resolute about complex decision making, including whether or not to continue a pregnancy. And when they reach that spot, even if they're emotionally labile about it, we are, I personally and everybody I know who practices abortion ethically in, endeavor to make sure that that person is clear and sure about their choices, even if they're emotional about it. And the primary 
uh, emotion that that I've seen anecdotally women express and that what the research tells us happens to the tune of about 80% is that the primary uh, emotion that women experience immediately after an abortion is relief. Mm -hmm. And so the whole notion, it's it's been clinically and uh, scientifically and anecdotally in every way you slice has been proven that there's no such thing as post-abortion syndrome in terms of women having psychological issues following abortion, where there'd be increased risk for uh, suicidal ideation or clinical depression or any of that. And that said, I we have organizations that, to your point, provide the uh, uh, mental health services. There are groups like or, uh, organizations called Exhale and others who do, do targeted post-abortion counseling and and, mm-hmm. and but also uh, provide the capacity for women when they're in the contemplative and deliberation stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, looking back, so to your point, to the to you know, in terms of the means of how women get to where they are, uh, there's certainly I think in the way that even when abortion was illegal, the Jane Project and other projects where women who provided abortion care for other women when there were no providers legally available. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there has always been this mindfulness around supporting women uh, mentally and emotionally uh, and making sure that they are resolute and certain in their decision-making. But I think part of the trauma and the anxiety that you're talking about will be uh, the people who, for whom there won't be a bus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think bus, the, a, a bus to uh, a, a neighboring state will offer a sense of hope that many people are losing right now. I'm seeing patients every day. We've, we've in, in where I practice in anticipation of Arkansas closing its doors after the road decision because Arkansas is a trigger ban state. And for mm. the trigger ban states are those states that preemptively uh, and proactively placed past laws that said in the event that Roe is overturned, that abortion will become immediately illegal in those states. So I'm mm. seeing women every day uh, as we increase our access to try and handle the one month backlog of women in Arkansas who come from Texas, Oklahoma and other surrounding states to try and get the care that's not available to them in their states. I just took care of a woman today who drove uh, 11 hours from a city in Texas because mm. at six weeks she was lied to about how far along she was, which denied her her opportunity to have an abortion before six weeks in Texas. She spent the next several weeks trying to uh, call around to find access to care. She finally got an appointment in Arkansas. And so she had to drive 11 hours to get to Arkansas where there's a 72-hour waiting period. So. Mm. I had to counsel this person as required by law in Arkansas that they meet with the physician providing the care face to face. And for her, because she didn't have the resources beyond the cost of the abortion, she had to camp for three days in a national park here in Arkansas Mm. while she waited to have her abortion today because she had to wait 72 hours because of the way the laws are structured. So I can tell you that what's more anxiety producing for women at this point is, you know, the pending loss of the services that that were already meager and scarce. 
And we have to think about what's next for us when these services finally do disappear. And what will we do for people who live in those zip codes that we alluded to earlier that uh, uh, where the, the care will be even farther away than it used to be? Thank you for calling me in. Um, we talk now as our language is constantly evolving and changing, mm -hmm. you know, calling people out. I'm going to call you out. Thank you for calling me in and deeper into mm -hmm. this conversation about um, what are the mental health challenges, right? And what are the mm -hmm. actual things that women are willing to do in order to take care of themselves and their health? Mm -hmm. um, what that also triggered for me is that um, there are so many areas of opportunity for people to serve, for people to help, um, and different things of that sort. And we have spent quite a lot of time um, talking about the walk and the path for women. Uh, but I want to know, what do you recommend Black men do to get more involved and active in the fight for reproductive justice, especially in support of Black women? Well, that's uh, that's a, a, a question that's that's become primary for me and it's, it's uh, deep for me. And I think the, the first thing that any of us can do is take, take uh, the airline approach to safety in the event of a cabin depressurization on a plane. I fly a lot. And the first thing that the flight attendants tell you that in the event of that, that, that the oxygen goes out of the plane, a mask is going to fall out of the ceiling and first put it on yourself and then put it on the person next to you. So in other words, you can't help anybody else until you first help yourself. And one of the first things that we have to do as men uh, is to raise our awareness and our consciousness with that primary definition of feminism, that uh, that feminism is the notion that women are human beings. And in terms of the de definition that men and women aren't equal, but they ought to be. And so we need mm -hmm. to first become aware. To become aware is to become responsible. So we as Black men, we need to look at the way the world is structured and look at you know, the systems that we feel oppressed by. And then the first epiphany we need to have is that the same systems that we feel oppressed by are also oppressing Black women. Uh, and that our, our destinies are mutually intertwined, as Dr. King would say. And so there's not there's not the the struggle for the black man's liberation and the woman's his helpmate, and his responsibility is to liberate black women. And then when 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 he is liberated, black women will get their just due. We have to have different understandings of what it means to be living community and to be partnered and to think about our masculinity and our manhood in ways that allow us to work. Uh, alongside and be co-conspirators for justice with Black women. Uh, and so that means we have to create relationships of communication and understanding and that, that lead to mutual deference. We have to understand that we will never be healthy in all that we can be if Black women aren't healthy in all that they can be. So uh, it, it also prompts me to call into question this notion of being an ally. 
that when people have called me an ally as a man whose politics and who's who, who, who self-identifies as a feminist, it's oftentimes their their need to call me an ally as a feminist been, has been to let me know that I'm not a woman, right? Mm. And so then that prompts them, they have to analyze what my interest might be and to what degree am I committed to the cause, right? And so I used to struggle with that, but I no longer struggle with whatever you call me while you're trying to figure out whether to call me a feminist or an ally, I'm going to do the work of community building and mm. liberation work. And so I think that's the first task of any man is uh, to get involved and to understand the, the, his role as a man and to recognize that his role as a man is not determined by his ability to dominate a woman and in particular mm. a black woman. So, you know, first, Heal thyself, right? Uh, so get your head straight on on who you are and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a black man. And what that means, that can't happen in isolation. It has to mean that you have to look at, okay, I'm a man. I'm a black man. I'm a man, a black man, a part of a community that's defined by our blackness. The, the, the complementary partner in that is women and girls or my, people that I ally with that I partner with and that I live alongside and that I build kinship with. So when I figure that out, then I figure out what is the work and what's my part of it. And I think all of those will, when, when, if you can get a man to start thinking, a black man to start thinking in those ways, then when he now seeks out uh, the opportunity to raise his consciousness and his awareness by aligning with black women who are well-versed in womanism and feminism, then uh, how you come to the table will de determine how you can uh, get the work done. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is beautiful. It leads me to another question because, um, you know, that's what I do. I'm the host. Um, but then on the other <laughs> hand, um, it, it makes me think about what's happening in popular culture, right? So, um, I'm one of those folks that listens to the Breakfast Club on occasion, and I and I hear uh, my Southern brother Charlemagne the God, you know, talking about his mental health um, uh, struggles and challenges, and overcoming and healing, and how he likes to share that process um, through his platform. But he's not the only one; he's just the one that's coming to my mind right now. And there are there is a movement, I think, among Black men to begin to start embracing mental health and counseling, you know, as a means for healing. Um, and especially I think of a certain age group where they're coming to a time where they're like, okay, certain things about being hard or certain things about being misogynistic or certain things about the way I used to behave as a young man don't work for me anymore. Um, I'm finding that some of these, uh, or maybe I'm saying I as though I were a sure. guy, but I'm not. Um, they're finding that some of the assumptions that underlie their behavior are proving themselves not to be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so as as we were watching this um, kind of mental health movement, if you will, among Black men, do you think that there is... Um, that it's helping the fight for reproductive justice and health equity? Well, I, I have to say that I have to confess that I'm not on top of the data around mental health uh, and in particular the movement of black men. But I do know that 
uh, African-Americans make up about 16% of people carrying a mental health diagnosis. And I do know that in our community, there's stigma and shame around seeking health, help for mental health issues. Uh, and I know that that stigma seems to be more pronounced for Black men. So I'm uh, uh, inspired and uh, grateful that more men are talking about mental health and trying to recognize the pathologies uh, that they have around unhealed um, traumas in their lives uh, when that comes to their their, their conscious forethought. Uh, I know that they're only about two and a half to three percent of black uh, of mental health uh, professionals are black. So the cultural hum humility or the cultural sensitivity and awareness to address uh, traumas and healing uh, that needs to take place in a culturally appropriate, specific way, uh, those services are limited. But I think, for me, I think that it's great that these, that, that Black men are getting mental health services, but I don't think that the pathologies that will lead to our improvement as a community are related to mental health as much as they are to social norms and the culture around mm. toxic masculinity and patriarchy. And so the challenge for us as Black men is to figure out how we understand ourselves as men and how that understanding is related to a hierarchical way of thinking about relationships with women versus a, 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 a connective and relational way of thinking about it. So I think even if we get all men healthy mentally so that they don't care if the of some four or five or whatever the current uh, <laughs> psychiatric or uh, coding is, mm -hmm. most men who, uh, who, who are, are patriarchs or who are engaged in intimate partner violence don't carry a, a mental health diagnosis. Mm. They, carry, they carry social permission and the social expectation that what they, what it means for them to understand themselves as men is to dominate women, even if it comes to being physically harmful to them. So uh, as Black, what we have to look at is Black, uh, all men have to understand patriarchy and the system of gender, uh, you know, of misogyny and patriarchy and uh, male supremacy and understand uh, what it, how that is toxic and harmful to the women and people in our lives and how it is toxic and harmful to us ourselves. We have to understand that patriarchy costs us a portion of our humanity to participate mm. in a hierarchical system. So I think we can, to, to cut to the chase, I think mental health, everybody should be getting mental health and getting healthy uh, and, and getting their minds right. But I don't think that that's going to quell the reality that uh, we as black men have to think about our masculinity manhood in ways that are non-patriarchal or non-traditional. And mm -hmm. we have to make sure that, that we are, as we, we have to make sure that black masculinity is not simply uh, white capitalist patriarchy mm -hmm. as bell hooks would call it in blackface. Mm hmm mm hmm Yes, that could simmer for a while. I mean, so many wonderful things um, that you have mentioned, especially speaking um, about Bell Hooks. Um, I was just reading her book, The Will to Change. And I mm -hmm. should say I was listening to it because 
it's it's easier for me to do that when I'm driving. Um, <laughs> Bell hooks the will to change uh, men, masculinity and love. Um, and I think that in that book, she speaks so well about the different ways that um, patriarchy um, shows up and how it constricts and restricts um, men um, mm -hmm. from being healthy. Um, mm -hmm. And she writes it very much, in my opinion, as a as almost as a love letter to men to encourage them to get free from mm -hmm. that patriarchy um, mm -hmm. and to um, recognize that they have an opportunity to recreate what is uh, what is it to be male? What is it to be masculine um, in a way that's a lot more healthy? Mm -hmm. And one way that I will call you in um, is that, you know, when I think about mental health counseling, I really try to advocate for the fact that a lot of us don't necessarily have a DSM-4 or DSM-5 diagnosis. Um, some of us do. Um, <laughs> but regardless, mm -hmm. because of the things that we experience in our lives, there is still opportunity for healing in a mental health uh, capacity and, and, and um, setting. I hear wholeheartedly what you're saying about how um, the social constructs of black male, black masculinity and, and black maleness has to be addressed from a different perspective that's not necessarily individualistic and not as clinical as we perceive it in a very, you know, um, Western medicine type of way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just want to share that with our audience that, you know, if, if you don't have a depression of anxiety, if you don't yet meet the standard for um, uh, depression or some other, you still um, can benefit from um, talking to a mental health professional and working through some of the trauma, um, some of the, the, the self-esteem issues, some of the other things that might be plaguing you or holding you back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for the, the call in uh, to allow me to be explicit about uh, the, the, my, 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 it was, that it was not my intent to demote the primary and extremely important uh, 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 pursuit and the promotion of uh, uh, health-seeking behaviors around mental health and that we be careful that we don't stigmatize uh, the, uh, mental health. Uh, if you had lung cancer or some other physical problem, you wouldn't feel ashamed of getting that um, mm -hmm. yeah, but what, what I'm thinking, what, what prompted me to, to, to throw that in was I think about some of my, before I became an abortion provider, my primary public health related work was in intimate partner violence. Mm. And when I thought about, we also, one, one, one approach to that was batter treatment programs where mm -hmm. men and men were often court mandated to get treatment. Uh, and, uh, it, and it's also, it, the same approach that we take to like gun violence when, and mm -hmm. you know, the tragedy that as we tape this, someone, you know, went into a elementary school in Texas to shoot and kill t 12 kids um, today. Um, and, but when we talk about gun violence and the pervasiveness of it and the lethality and the, all of that, 
when there's a shooter, we we talk we we start to talk about the mental health of that mm-hmm. individual before we start to look at there's a societal phenomena that mm-hmm. facilitates these episodes of horrific violence. And I think when it comes to uh, when I'm looking at the health and well-being of women, uh, how it's been influenced by men uh, and their impact as a primary, you remember I talked about doing primary prevention around mm-hmm. women's health and well-being. Uh, the primary prevention for women is working with men. And it's if you have an anger management problem or if you have clinical depression or if you have a lot of other things, those things need to be treated so that you can now be at baseline to start the 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 the, the betrayal of, of patriarchy that mm. plagues us all, whether we're healthy men or men who carry mental health diagnoses. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for that dialogue. I'm going to ask just two more questions. Uh, you know, we could talk for hours, I'm sure. This is such mm-hmm. an enthralling conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you describe yourself as a feminist and you talked about allyship and things of that sort. How do other Black men receive the your, your you know, willingness to say, I am a feminist? How does that you know, we're talking about social and cultural norms and messages. How is that received? What are some of the, I don't know, um, feedback that you receive? Okay. Well, that's a great question. I'll first say, I think uh, it's been uh, a mixed bag. You know, the men that I consider my my close friends and, you know, uh, as a Christian, one of the verses that I've embraced is that evil, evil communication corrupt good manners. So, I've tried to surround myself with people who, whose values reflect mine or whose values supersede mine and challenge me to be more humane and to live with more integrity. And when I do that and I have mutual accountability relationships uh, around my behavior with those men, for the most part, the men who are my friends, they get me and they embrace the justice work that I do uh, as my own personal commitment to uh, recognizing and rejecting and uh, undermining patriarchy. But they also sometimes exceptionalize my points of view and my behaviors as being atypical for a strong heterosexual Black man. Part of it is because my chosen craft as a woman's health provider, they will sometimes be dismissive and, and think and say that, of course you think that way, you're an OBGYN, you take care of women. Uh, but what that does is if 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 they make my politics and my behavior and my points of view exceptional, if they conclude it, that's assuming that they include that my worldview is healthy, uh, they will often consider it a gift. You're gifted rather than it being the result of intentional self-work to reject patriarchy and to deepen my humanity as a man. So. Uh, as we challenge each other to be better men, with me checking, with them checking me on uh, uh, my consistency for what I say, I believe, and what I practice, and me checking them on patriarchal thinking when it comes up in our in our uh, our um, conversations, uh, you know, it's my in my inner circle I'm with men who identify deeply and feel challenged by me, and we feel mutually challenged with each other. In the public, uh, I haven't. Uh, engaged 
brothers so much as listening to different podcasts of men who, um, if I oversimplify, uh, some of them uh, in their ways that they think about manhood are Black nationalist in terms mm -hmm. of seeing the primary salvation of Black people being the liberation of Black men and the rest of the Black community will be eliminated, it will be liberated when the Black man gets his rightful place, the community will be restored. And that has a lot to do with patriarchal thinking and in some ways, uh, religious understandings of man being the head of the household. Now, as a Christian and a person who understands, you know, sacred texts and the cultural expectations and norm that are pretty strong in the Black community around the the household being uh, centered around a strong man, um, I try and challenge uh, these assumptions and notions and plan to do so even more so when with the advent of my podcast and, throw, mm -hmm. and allow, if you allow me to make a little pitch for the podcast yes. that we're working on called putting it where the ghosts get it conversations about black masculine and manhood that I'm excited about that's in the development I try to challenge men to examine the patriarchy and white supremacy and to understand what it costs them in their humanity if they don't recognize patriarchy and the practices of it and decide what their role is in dismantling it or participating in it. And I think that's uh, what feminism has led me to do uh, and is what I offer them as a tool of what feminism in general, Black feminism in particular, can offer them insights into how they need to understand themselves and decide what their role is. Um, it's, uh, you know, part of what trips them up in, uh, either amongst my friends or even amongst other men is they get tripped about the root of the word feminism and think that feminism implies female and that it's about your pol your biology as opposed to your politics and your worldview. Mm. So um, I try and return them to my hopefully simple understanding of feminism being about uh, making sure that life chances of people don't depend on the gender or sex that uh, is ascribed to them when they're born or how they understand themselves. You know, even we don't, women who understand themselves as women or people who uh, come to understand themselves as women, the reality is uh, feminism is the direct confrontation of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy is the essential system of structure in a hierarchical structure in our society. So um, what I'm saying for if for the men that, who got to know me initially, it was heretical. Right. It's like I'm betraying the brotherhood. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I consider the one power that I have and that every uh, person born male or every man in this society, if we're going to dismantle patriarchy, every man has to become a traitor to patriarchy. And he has to realize that patriarchy has nothing to do with his manhood and that we can dismantle patriarchy and his manhood won't be compromised. In fact, it will be enhanced. So it's a mixed bag about, you know, uh, how men respond to my identity as as an anti-patriarch and as a person whose politics are feminist, black feminist in particular. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Um, I am so excited that you started to talk about your next project because that was going to be my next question, which is what projects are you currently working on um, 
that are addressing reproductive justice, health equity, or Black feminism? And how can other people join you? Well, the first project is to accept invitations from uh, 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 podcast uh, journalists who create forums like like this is questions you didn't ask. So I'm taking these kinds of inv invitations that will allow me to uh, expand expound and expand on my concerns about the issues that are pertinent for today. Like Dr. King, when he branched over into uh, uh, talking about the uh, Vietnam War, people mm -hmm. tried to pigeonhole him into being a civil rights leader. He said in response to people who were critical of him, criticizing the president and, and challenging America to have ideals that were consistent with liberty and justice and freedom, he said, that I'm talking about this, the, the Vietnam War because I refuse to segregate my concerns of humanity. So mm. me being defined primarily as a woman's health provider and a reproductive justice advocate, uh, as I said, I consider branching into uh, the primary work that is prevention for women is primary work with men. Uh, I have a vested interest as a man and my primary work health and well-being and worth uh, being vested in the fact that I want to be a healthy man and a whole human being, and I want to invite other people into that. So towards that end, I've conceptualized and I'm working on the development of a podcast, as I said earlier, called Putting It Where the Ghosts Can Get It, the premise being uh, creating a forum to have uh, clear and uh, concise and uh, uh, conversations about Black masculinity and manhood with another Black man, about Black men, for Black men, but for the world to hear. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm working on that podcast. And I'm also going to fulfill my pledge to Bell Hooks, who endorsed my book and who I had a personal relationship with mm -hmm. uh, before she passed away. Uh, as I was reading her book, We Real Cool, and the book that you mentioned earlier, she said one of the things that you need to do if you're going to contribute and help is as a black man who's finding the ways to overthrow patriarchy and to build black community and to participate lovingly in that community, you've got to write. So mm -hmm. as I uh, uh, go into the twilight of my clinical career, I'm going to make space and time to sit down and write about the thoughts and the ideas that I uh, shared and uh, and uh, explored with you in this conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. And along those lines, please tell our audience about your current book that's available on Amazon and probably some other wonderful places too. Yeah. So the my first book is called, uh, which has got, been a, a real tool and a, of empowerment for people thinking about abortion and in an effort like our podcast to shed light instead of heat is the book called Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. And in it, I explore a lot of the issues around abortion access and abortion care uh, from the standpoint of why I provide abortions as a person whose faith identity is Christian, pushing mm -hmm. back on the idea that uh, certain that very limited understandings of Christianity that are Christian supremacist and patriarchal in nature make the fact that I'm an abortion provider and a Christian mutually exclusive. 
I simply beg to differ and offer a different understanding of the sacred text called the Bible and the, the religion of Jesus in terms of allowing it to inform the compassion that guides me to provide these services. And I think that's extremely relevant and timely. Uh, I don't I don't think it I don't I didn't have to consider myself a prophet to four years ago to recognize that we were going to end up in this place with regard to Roe and that mm. we were going to be in a moment where white replacement theory was interacting with uh, reproductive rights and shaping the very fact that the real effort to control fertility is to gain control of of white women's fertility to make them have more babies. Uh, so all of that's in my book. And if you really want to understand this moment we're in, especially around reproduction and abortion and white supremacy and race, uh, uh, white, white replacement therapy and its role in our current reproductive rights laws, uh, you can get uh, life's work on Amazon and other book. Uh, it's about to go into another printing, so it'll be available at a at online or at a bookstore near you. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, you brought up the replacement theory. That was one question that I wanted to ask and I forgot um, because we were talking about so many other wonderful things, um, mm -hmm. very interesting and informative things. But I'm going to leave it there because I okay. want people to go out and buy your book <laughs> to be able to learn more about your thoughts about white supremacy and its intersection with uh, with uh, reproductive justice. Um, and specifically abortion rights. So you've heard it here, guys. This is very important. We're just, we're still in the mourning process of the mass shooting that was um, done in Buffalo, New York uh, by a gentleman, not a gentleman, by a person who was um, motivated by white replacement theory. Um, so if you want to learn more about what that is from the perspective of reproductive justice and abortion rights, You've heard it here. Dr. Willie Parker's book is titled uh, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. Uh, and you will also be hearing uh, from questions you didn't ask um, more information about his upcoming uh, podcast that will be airing soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and our audience, Dr. Parker. It has been nothing short of a pleasure. I mean, I have really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. And uh, best wishes to you. And uh, I hope uh, your audience grows. I'm certainly going to be tuning in to questions you didn't ask. But again, thanks for the opportunity. Most definitely. Most definitely.